Occasional podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror movies, and horror gaming in general. And my name's Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this week, our topic is The Haunter of the Dark, the classic H.P. Lovecraft story. Yes, in particular, we're going to look at how you can use it uh, as inspiration for your gaming, for scenario design, um, and and elements of the story and and stylistic flourishes that you might be able to pick up and uh, take as inspiration as a keeper. And for myself, at least, for revealing a little bit of the background behind how the stories are written and the connection between other members of the Lovecraft Circle. All right. So, are we kicking off with uh, Robert Block's story? Yes. That preceded The Haunter of the Dark? Well, I mean, before we do that, let's, let's talk a little bit about how the stories came to be. So, um... H.P. Lovecraft was famous for corresponding with other writers, um, particularly throughout the U.S., but you know all over the place. Uh, he was um, a great inspiration to a lot of young writers, in particular. Um, and one of those young writers was uh, a gentleman by the name of Robert Block, um, who went on to become very famous in his own right. Um, he's probably still best known for writing the novel Psycho, uh, which was the inspiration for the Hitchcock film of the same name. Um, but if you're, if you're not familiar with his body of work, it's well worth seeking out. He, he's, his work is... Uh, combination of macabre, funny, imaginative, um, and just bloody well written. Hmm. Yeah, seconded. Um, I was quite surprised. Um, and, and he was a precocious young sod as well. I, you know, th- this first story that you know, we're going to look at, the one that kicked it all off, uh, he sold to Weird Tales in 1935. Robert Block was born in 1917. He wrote this story when he was 18 and sold it to Weird Tales. Yeah, I couldn't believe that. When I um, realised how young he was. Yeah. yeah. Especially after having conversed with Lovecraft to say, hey, do you mind if I kill you off in a story? It'll be great. Yeah. And still getting it sold. <laughs> so, um, yeah, speaking of killing Lovecraft off in a story, let's let's go to the first story then, which is The Shambler from the Stars. Uh, the overview of Shambler from the Stars then is that the narrator of the story, who you can pretty much assume it is Robert Block anyway, um, acquires a copy of Divermis Mysteries, uh, Mysteries of the Worm and seeks out someone in his scholarly community that can translate it for him, and stumbles across this old gentleman of providence, cough, cough, Lovecraft, cough, cough, um, takes the book to him, um, promptly deciphers it, even after warning him, no, there are some, some things that man should not, should not be meant to know. Oh, this looks good. Starts reading it and promptly is devoured by the Shambler from the Stars. Yeah, I mean, th- th- it's a lovely scene in there because I, I, we, we've probably all had something like this come up in a role-playing game at some stage, which is he's sitting there, he's getting carried away in the translation, the, the Lovecraft uh, stand-in, and it, he gets to this bit and it's sort of, yeah, you've got to hear this bit, let me just read this <laughs> bit out loud. In the Latin. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, this is, after all, the evil stories of how the author of the book... You know, uh, Ludwig Prynne. Yeah. Yes. We get a, quite yes. a, a bio- biography of uh, Ludwig Prynne in the, yeah, in the story, right. actually. Hmm. 
But but all these stories of how he'd used this book to summon horrible entities. Yeah. Oh, didn't he and die it, this way as well? And no, actually, he was tortured to death, wasn't he? He wrote the book remember. in prison. Yeah. And it was snuck out by a guard. Yes. Um, and uh, yes, while he was awaiting trial, he penned the uh, De Vermes Mysteries. That's a long wait for him to be able to pen that thing. <laughs> but I, the, if I remember correctly, the description that Block gives of how the Lovecraft analogue dies in this is very similar to the description that Lovecraft himself gave for the death of Abdul al Oh, that's where I got... Yeah. Mm. Um, where, where an invisible entity snatched him up and then just killed him in the, the middle of a market square. Oh, Lovecraft used Abdul Hazard as a pen name for his, some of his juvenilia, didn't he, from what I remember? Um, oh, I'm not sure about that. I think I've read that somewhere. That might be somewhere in the depth in the depths of I, my... Yeah, I, I, I know it was a name that he came up with as a kid, and mm-hmm. I, I think you know, he called himself that a few times as a kid. And it could be, yeah. Yeah, there we go. But uh, yes, yeah, it's um, it, it's again something that yeah I've seen happen over and over again in role playing games as well. It's sort, of, it's sort of hang on, you're not reading that out loud. And the keeper smiling and nodding <laughs> and saying yes, yes, yes. Carry on. Let me get my yes, dice. You can speak yeah. Latin. You don't need to make the roll. <laughs> and of course, that's that's a major plot point in the Evil Dead as well, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Necktie. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, yes, having killed Lovecraft off in that, um, Lovecraft, in a fairly playful mood, you know, in correspondence with Robert Bloch, decided that he was going to return the favour and, and wrote um, an uncharacteristically kind of light tone to the introduction of um, The Haunter of the Dark. The, the story gets darker as it goes along. But you know, it, it it is very much you know sort of him playing with in jokes to begin with, um, and and in, in the Haunter of the Dark he has this protagonist called Robert Blake, um, who uh, having killed off you know, his his friend some time back or been involved with his you know, friend's death comes back to Providence uh, there to get the inspiration for his writing and his art. Um, and gets embroiled in stuff. Yeah, I mean, I was always put off this tale a little bit because uh, I think when I first encountered it, I I read about Block having written uh, a story which Lovecraft then responded to and they were killing each other off. And it seemed like a bit of an in-joke amongst friends that to the, the casual reader was kind of not really part of Lovecraft's work. Except it very much is. I mean, it uses a lot of Lovecraft's classic tropes. Uh, and also, you know, this is Lovecraft at the height of his powers. I mean, this this is the last story he ever wrote. But is it Lovecraft exercising the height of his powers? I think so, yes. I mean, it doesn't have, say, quite the cosmic scope of, you know, something like uh, The Call of Cthulhu or uh, The Whisper in Darkness, maybe. Um Mountains of Madness. Yes. This was was written at a time when he had just got confirmation that At the Mountains of Madness was going to be published, and he wrote it over two or three days. Mm. Written very quickly, I believe. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, I mean, it may have started out from something fairly light, but I I think what it turned into is quite a substantive tale. Um, And there's, you know, there's a lot of good meat in there. There's uh, a lot of ideas in there, which, you know, are certainly fairly central to the Cthulhu mythos. Mm. Uh, Not least of which is the idea of, you know, Nialathotep having avatars. And also, say, links then to Azathoth as well. Well, I have to say, reading it again, 
And having read it a couple of times in preparation for this podcast, I kind of changed my view on the story. Oh, cool. Okay. Um, reading it again. I think sometimes when I'm reading um, short stories, particularly by Lovecraft and, and so on, I'm kind of st- striving to kind of really get to grips with the story and what it's about and make sure I'm not missing out on anything. Um, and sometimes kind of gloss over the kind of poetry of the writing really and the, the imagery that he kind of creates in the story and, and this one is great well there, there are some fantastic passages in here uh, some of the passages where he yeah, that, that, that one where he's describing what is visible through the shining trapezohedron is just amazing mm. but, but, but jumping ahead of ourselves here I mean for those who haven't read the story let's give a, an outline of what happens in there we should mention it, it opens with uh, a quote from Nemesis which is yes. Lovecraft's earlier poem written in the year that Robert Block was born 1917 <laughs> by some strange coincidence ushering him into the world um, quite aptly yes so our protagonist uh, Robert Blake um, we're told at the outset of the story that Robert Blake is dead and that kind of reminds me of um, Sunset Boulevard no actually The Christmas Carol <laughs> <laughs> dead from the beginning, or something like that. The, the, the two now, are often mistaken. For each other. <laughs> but now, I, uh, especially after several white Russians. Yeah. But now my my um, my, my conception of uh, um, the Christmas Carol is very much via the Muppets <laughs> announcing Gonzo saying uh, Robert Blake was dead from the beginning. <laughs> yeah, if, they were, if they were a Muppet version of the of the Haunter of the this Dark, would be awesome. like, oh, I would watch that in a heartbeat. <laughs> so Haunter of the Dark is really Gonzo. <laughs> <laughs> no, one of his chickens. Ah. <laughs> Gonzo just sat, sat there, frozen-faced, at a little upstairs window, staring out <laughs> and, for and days. And great chicken flapping towards <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, I think we're capturing the true cosmic horror here. Um... And uh, cutting back to the story, <laughs> Robert Blake is dead. And he's, he's um, been seen um, by people as being dead at the upstairs window, I think, at the yeah. very outset of the story. It, so we kind of know how things are going to play out. Yeah, I mean, the, the, if I remember correctly, the neighbours, you know, some college kids have seen him sitting there mm. with this strange look on his face and uh, just wondered all day, should we do something about that? He doesn't look right. Should we do something? Well, let's wait till it gets dark. Well, yeah. we should do something about that. <laughs> You do something, I'm not doing anything. Lovecraft describes uh, Robert Blake sitting in his upstairs window, looking out across towards Federal Hill, across Providence, and this is kind of a bit of town that perhaps he's never been to, but he can see it, and he's looking out across town, and Lovecraft says, it's like looking on some unknown ethereal work which might or might not vanish in dream if ever he tried to seek it out like something you can see in the distance but you're going to go through the streets and you're never quite going to be able to find it but it looks really good um but of course he does make his way across there there's there's echoes of dream quest of unknown kdath in that there is yeah 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 um and it's the uh, the italian area and lovecraft doesn't fall into his old errors of kind of criticizing race yes and, uh, and there was none of that yeah, the streets um, are very matter-of-factly. Kind of yeah, yeah. I, I, I was absolutely stunned when I was rereading the story. I, I, I sat there, um, saw him mention the Italian section of town, and thought, oh, "Okay, yeah, we're in for some quality racism here." But, yeah. but no, not 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 a peep of it. No, 
I, I mean, this this does kind of go back to the idea that as Lovecraft got older, he readjusted his lot, a lot of his racial views. Mm. I mean, if, if I remember correctly, in his correspondence or some of his essays, he talks about the fact that you know he'd seen some new pseudoscientific essays at that stage, which had changed his views as to um, the fact that you know, other races perhaps were the equal of the Anglo-Saxons. Uh, except for black people, he never changed his mind about black people. Um, every everyone else, he eventually grudgingly, you know, said, you know, was up to the standard of Anglo-Saxons. But but, but that was based on pseudo scientific evidence. Yeah, the same pseudo scientific evidence <laughs> or you know, sources that had convinced him, you know, of his racist theories in the first place. So. Yeah. Yes, he prided himself on being a man of science, but um, maybe he didn't have quite as great an understanding as he thought he did. So Robert Blake makes his way across to the uh, the old church on Federal Hill, and he finds it a very decrepit structure uh, and shunned by the locals. Uh, what does he do then? I think he he, he then uh, kind of well, looks he around. Asks, it and... he, he asks around a bit, and yeah, he asks some of the locals, and they they basically refuse to talk about it. So he decides to break in through a cellar window. Yes, mm-hmm. and then go have a poke around inside. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as you do, mm-hmm. as you do, especially if you're a PC in a game, yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. Going back to the gaming aspect, that 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 is very much the PC thing mm-hmm. to do. Yeah. You've got your clues now. Go and raid it. Get them what all. clues though? Well, the clue that there's evidently some kind of mystique here. There's always some kind of aura of mystery. There must be loads. Well, it's not just that. No, it, it wasn't just that he'd seen the church and it looked a bit weird. At that stage, he'd talked to a policeman and he'd been told that there was a strange cult that had met there. Right. Yeah. Um, Starry wisdom cult. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I was very struck by, as we've discussed before, about Lovecraft characters knowing about um, the Cthulhu mythos already at the beginning of the story. Yes. He goes in and finds, I think, the, there's the copy of the Necronomicon. Yeah. The, base, the, the Vermis Vermis Mysterious. Narcotic uh, uh, manuscripts are in there, I think. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's four oh, or five and and Colton. of the heavyweight Cthulhu tomes. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, I've read all them. <laughs> yes. I, what I meant to do was actually add up from the, the Seventh Head Rulebook how much Cthulhu Mythos that would actually give you if you'd read all those. Because <laughs> I think you'd be knocking be 20, on 20 to 30%. Or I think more than that. You've got oh. the, the original Latin Necronomicon. Yeah, that, that's, that's pretty um, serious. I think you'd be knocking on towards 50% with, with all that lot. Well, no wonder he thought it was a good idea to break in. Yeah, his, his sanity must have taken a hell of a knocking. Mm-hmm. So he makes his way through the old church, um, stopping to uh, look at a, a crumbling skeleton at the foot of the ladder. No, that, oh, that's that, right, yeah, right, right at the top. right at the top? Yeah. <coughs> yeah, it's hidden by a pile of dust next mm-hmm. to the, uh, the, um, the plinth and the chairs and the strange pictures. Mm-hmm. Ah, yes, the seven chairs. Yeah, I think. There was one great line, especially just after he found just after he found those books before heading up the staircase, that when I read it, I suddenly thought, I've heard that line somewhere before. And then, of course, it twigged from John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness. Uh, the line where it says, This place had once been the seat of an, um, an evil older than mankind and wider than the known universe. At which point I hear Sam Neill whispering in my ear, This reads like a guidebook. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, that, that's right. And the other giveaway when he's in the church that this wasn't quite a noble church, I mean, apart from the copy of the Necronomicon and so on, <laughs> was the fact that instead of a crucifix hanging over the altar, there's an ankh. Yes, that's true. Yes. Oh, which, of course, then he decides, oh, I know about this. This is all about Nathotep. <laughs> <laughs> which is the first thing that most people think when they see an ankh. Yeah, of course. 
It's worth mentioning here, if you haven't listened to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast, you should really do so. They covered all of Lovecraft's stories over the space of a couple of years and did a fantastic job of it. Uh, on this particular episode for The Haunter of the Dark, Chad Pfeiffer was particularly tickled by uh, Lovecraft's line where he says, Blake wondered how the obscurely painted panes could have survived so well in view of the known habits of small boys the world over. <laughs> that is a corker. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a lovely, wry, comical line from Lovecraft, who, you know, perhaps wasn't best known for his comical touches. It could be funny at times, yeah. though. I mean, especially with Herbert West and, and so on. I think he brings a little bit of that out uh, in this. Yeah, Herbert West is fairly atypical from that point of view. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Her- Herbert West is just down like a slapstick in places. Sure. <laughs> it's also funny trying to find the line as well. <laughs> yeah, but you're not going to hear that, dude. <laughs> We, we know it's in here somewhere. Where is it? We're prepared. We we might put the outtakes up as a separate episode, just so you can hear how much Paul can swear in a short period of time. <laughs> <laughs> so where were we? Back with the story. They're in the in the upper room in the old church in the is it the bell tower i think yeah. so what, what would have been the bell tower yeah, yeah. that's it's... right because he, he's looking for bell ropes and there aren't any but instead he finds this mm-hmm. this strange sort of altar and the uh and a corpse yeah and kind of seven-sided room yeah well, well there, there are these portraits which look like uh easter island statues there are these gothic chairs sitting there no actually i'm gonna point out it was seven-sided because in um yeah more annotated H.P. Lovecraft, <laughs> which is a um, uh, a book edited by the great S.T. Joshi and Peter Cannon. It's a very good book, and I like the annotations, but then he he kind of breaks off from annotations and contextual notes to basically be a dictionary at times. Yeah. So he tells you what heptagonal means and what gibbering um, yeah. means and, and Cyclopean well, it, yeah it was with Cyclopean in this story it wasn't even uh, you know, this is what Cyclopean means it's footnotes that basically says Lovecraft used this word a lot didn't he <laughs> yeah and it says oh I use this in Call of Cthulhu go and have a look in the notes that I made in that one yeah. well yeah it's not the yeah. most helpful of footnotes <laughs> yeah I, um, I, whereas in fact I thought he could have put in some other notes about you know some more of the uh, actual context that the story yeah. in places um, but we digress <laughs> regularly. So there he is in the uh, in the bell tower, the seven sided room, and there's a little bit of light coming in through the leave um, the the what's the word? Uh, Louvered windows. Louvered windows. Um, and there he finds the box. Mm-hmm. Yes, this this irregular metal box with strange carvings on it, and they're suspended by wires in the middle of the box. Is this black gemstone? That is kind of weird. Why it's suspended yeah. in the box? I, I, and this, this this irregular gemstone as well, which you know is obviously being carved. It's got you know facets carved into it, uh, but but doesn't seem to have a regular shape to it. Held, it. held at different angles and so forth. Trapezohedron. Well, he describes it as a trapezohedron, or at least he mentions the name. But when he gives the description, I mean, a trapezohedron would fit. pretty much be a D10. Um, well, not necessarily ten-sided, though. No, no, but but yeah, with those facets on it. Yes, kite-shaped sides. Yeah, but um, but but yeah, you know, the description he gives yeah you know, makes it sound like a much more irregular stone with you know facets carved almost willy-nilly into it. Yeah, a ten-sided die as the shining trapezohedron seems a bit disappointing to me. Yeah, it should have been at least a d twenty. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm the one keeping a straight face, honest. <laughs> yes. But I, I, it should have been something just kind of weird and disturbing to look at with you know non-Euclidean angles and so on. Um, but if you want to have your sanity shattered in 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 uh, you know in ways comparable to Lovecraft, then do as I did and uh, check out what a trapezohedron is on um, on Wikipedia. <laughs> and tell me if you you know if you do actually understand it then let me know, because I couldn't make head or tail of it. There's a picture of one, and that's fine, but then they go a bit crazy. Okay. <laughs> okay, um, he was nodding really with a contented grin. Yes. <laughs> Someone's yeah. going to have to put a link up with that with the show notes. But yes, but, but, but Paul was nodding all the way through that in a very knowing way. Was I? Yes. That wasn't me. <laughs> I've stared too long into the shining trapezohedron. We'll, we'll move on to the possession bit in a moment. Actually, no, that's quite a good seg, because you know, as as uh, Blake looks into the trapezohedron, he sees things, and uh, th- this is this is one of my favourite sections of the story, because it's a reminder that the Cthulhu mythos is fundamentally alien. Because he sees alien landscapes, mm-hmm. um, he 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 sees things which look like they come from other planets, and yet th- this. This is a, a perhaps a strange aside. I mean, you know, obviously, aside from you know things like uh, Clark Ashton Smith and some of the, the landscapes he described, one thing that I was suddenly brought to mind of just reading this um, is one, one of my favourite horror films, Phantasm. Oh yes. Um, yeah. the, you get the revelation about halfway through it that this strange crypt where there's body snatching going on and so on actually has a portal to an alien world in there, and the entities that are coming through doing the body snatching, you know, are these alien creatures, shapeshifters, and um, that the, they live on this very, very different alien world. And and yeah, again, yeah, it was kind of this this reminder that at the core of this apparently gothic horror is something fundamentally science fictional mm. it even describes the likes of well they could be cities on other planets that are completely um, completely underwater but it definitely reminded me of like a deep one city in passages, it was a very very evocative passage Yeah. at this point if I remember correctly he freaks out a bit because he sees that the stone is slightly effervescent as well that the, there's a strange glow around it and that he thinks he can sense something looking back at him yes yeah. that's right Mm-hmm. And you know, starts feeling that he's being watched, not just through the trapezohedron, but through through the shadows of the room as mm-hmm. well. Uh, so yeah, he freaks out a bit, shuts the box. His fatal flaw. Uh, yeah. Oh, and the other thing that it's important to mention is the fact that when he was looking at the body before, uh, we mentioned the body in passing. He discovers that it's the body of a reporter that came here uh, yes. some years back to it's investigate it. Mm-hmm. Yes, and that he had uh, a notebook which had a number of notes on the history of the cult. Yes. Are these the ones that are written in Aklo? No. This no, was, the, this, uh, no, this, 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 was, this was, was the book that he finds down. I Actually, am I getting confused with the scenario now? No, you might be. No, so no, I don't this, this being mentioned. No, Aklo's definitely in the story. Yeah, it's I, it's I. I think it's a book that the uh, the the reporter, the reporter from downstairs. Yeah. It's got all these these strange cryptograms in it. 
Um, so, you know, Blake, when he freaks out and lakes it out of there, goes back home and starts decoding these cryptograms, works out that they're actually written in ACLO. That's it. Uh, ah, yes, yeah. And, mm-hmm. and decodes them from there. And as I think I've mentioned on another show before, ACLO originally comes from um, the Arthur Mackin story, uh, The White People, which if you haven't read it, you know, put this on pause, go off and read it now, your life will be better for it. And also, it just so happens to be that our, protag- um, our protagonist knows Aklo as well. <laughs> yes, well, if he's got 50% Cthulhu Mythos... He probably yeah. does, yeah, to be fair. Going back to you know, the start of the, the story, just briefly, there's a mention in there about, you know, of course, all these writers of weird fiction you know, had, had read all these, these books as inspiration, like the Necronomicon. Um, yeah, I mean, Lovecraft sort of hints that you know Blake's Lovecraft analog had you know done some of this before, and Blake himself had read all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And this comes up again further in the the Shadow from the Steeple. Very much so, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's it, I, I suppose in a lot of ways this is the germ of the the trope that's come up a lot in stories since then. That you know what Lovecraft was writing was based on the truth. Um, and that you know there there really is a real Necronomicon and stuff like that because you know obviously for you know within Lovecraft stories and for his protagonists and so on these things were very real but in the Haunter of the Dark he's starting to break the fourth wall a bit here um, and you know it, it becomes much more metafiction. Ooh. I'm not quite clear on. Well, it's that he tries to give the impression that Lovecraft was writing fact and that the stories were vaguely uh, veiled, fictionalised or dramatisations of real events that took oh, okay. place. That's that's how he describes, and that's how Block describes the events in Shadow of the Sea oh, yes, when he refers yeah, no, back yeah. to Haunter of the Dark. Yeah. I, and I, I think the first elements of that are there in the Haunter of the Dark, not as explicitly as in the Shadow from the Steeple. But... Yeah, they're, they're glossed over very slightly, yeah. So our narrator, Robert Blake, returns to his um, home, I think. Yes. And, yeah, he's he's returned to his home and he's decoding the notebook that he found. Uh, Is that when the uh, the storm begins? Yes, the storm starts. He becomes aware through what he decodes and the other elements that he's picked up and his, his previous knowledge that the um, from the reporter's notebook as well that the starry wisdom cult were worshipping this entity called the Haunter of the Dark that gave them knowledge that was kept at bay by light um, and so he becomes obsessed with the idea of you know, having light but um, yeah, at that point, uh, there yeah. are storms hitting Providence and the electricity supply becomes... He also starts sleepwalking as well. Yes. Oh, yes, he ties, himself, possession and dreams. ties yeah. himself up, ties himself to the bed or something yes. like yeah, that. Yeah, ties his feet together so that he would have to untie them before he could actually walk anywhere. So we're seeing the first signs of his possession there. Um, I, th- I think, you know, going back to the, uh, the H.P. Lovecraft literary podcast, they made quite a good point in there as well about, um, you know, towards the end of the story, they, you know, Blake is looking out the window, but he's keeping the lights off in his own room so he can get a better view of the... Um, of what's going on outside. And, you know, this again seems to tie in with the idea of the possession, that he sort of convinced himself this is a good idea. Light is but, dark, dark is light. Yeah. Yeah, he starts to see in a strange way, yes, exactly, he starts to see that things almost become like like a, a negative of a film. The dark is light, light is dark. And, and far away becomes close. 
towards the end yes. as well. Because yeah, he says he so can see is... the Italians at the front of the base of the church. Even yeah, and the Italians are gathered around the church with uh, candles, with little paper hoods over them and, and, and so on, trying to, to keep yeah. a light around the church as the, as the, the power starts to uh, blink out with the, the storm. Yes, and that's the point at which an entity comes out of the tower. An entity which isn't described uh, properly. I mean, we'll, we'll touch upon you know, the gaming aspects of this a bit later and perhaps you know, how you can you know, bring some elements of this narrative in. But I, I think it's wonderful the way the creature is and isn't described in the story. Uh, there's nothing very explicit about it, but you know, there are hints. Um, and you know, hints that contradict each other. At some point it seems like a cloud of smoke, but it's described as flopping as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Wind. Yeah, uh, that the, the, you know, there's this stench that goes with it, um, and yeah, it, it's, it's this mass of contradictory, unnatural elements that go together, which give you a, a feeling of of something that the mind can't quite grasp. With a three load burning eye. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I kind of picture him sat in his room, looking out um, towards the church, and this thing winging its way towards him. And he see it gets close enough that he can see. Well, indeed, it doesn't need to get close enough because he can see things that are far off as if they are close. Yeah. He can see things that are in the dark as if it's light. But he so describes at some it, point yeah. he describes the three lobe burning eye. But I mean, you, you talk about the you know this image of this this winged creature coming towards him. There's a cover of Crypt of Cthulhu magazine, which I. I Picked up, oh god, back in the eighties, uh, which uh, you know, has this uh, the, this view out from Rob, Robert Blake's window, and this wind creature with a three lobed burning eye coming straight towards it. And um, yeah, I, I don't know if that's turned up on the website. That's archiving a lot of the uh, the Crypt of Cthulhu stuff. But if that's there, it's a fantastic image. Ah. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm picturing something like the Nazgul from uh, uh, Lord of the Rings. I mean, I don't think yeah. that's what it is, but that's kind of what my mind is kind of uh, using as a, an analogue to that. I see. Yeah. For, for me, I was more thinking a bit more of a modern reference. Um, I was actually thinking the smoke beast from Lost. <laughs> yes. yes. How that darts around and that there's, say, there's lightning running through the thing and that it's this got this terrible atmosphere around it. Well, I don't think the lightning's running through it because you know there's the hint at the end that you know it sort of comes along, perhaps even does possess Blake fully, but something goes wrong at this stage, and instead of Blake becoming possessed, he dies. Maybe it's something to do with the lightning storm. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. The lightning is because it yeah. looks. There, one of the comments was that they thought, oh, he was obviously hit by a bolt of lightning, even though the window was perfectly intact. Yes, yeah. obviously. Yeah. Yes, exactly. What does happen at the end is unclear. I think. Which makes um, which makes it all the more potent. I you know, I th- there's there's a an unfortunate tendency in in horror games. I mean horror stories in general, but in horror games in particular, to try to explain everything. And you know, the, the explained is a lot less horrific than the unexplained. You know, you've got this this mystery at the end of the Haunter of the Dark. What really did happen to Robert Blake? You've got elements of it. You can make your own mind up. You've got this striking image, but it, you know, at no point does someone come along and say, "Ah, yes, it's because such and such," and wraps it all up neatly. And that, you know, that, that is far more potent. I know I've mentioned him previously, but definitely that's one of the effects that Robert Aikman has for mm. one of my favourite of his stories, The Empty Room. You never find out what's in there, yeah. and there's just this complete ambiguity of what is happening. 
Yeah, I mean, Robert Aikman is the master of that. I mean, he, more than anyone, understood that um, applying dream logic in stories and, you know, using hints and, and vague surrealism and so on within the confines of a relatively straight narrative can produce quite nightmarish effects. Mm-hmm. And to some extent, that's what Lovecraft's doing here. Yeah, I mean, Lovecraft tells us that there was a, a flash of lightning as the thing was going across towards Blake's room. Now, uh, listening to um, the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast, they kind of put forward the idea that the flash of lightning is what finished off the Haunter of the Dark, and he never actually got to Blake. So Blake was kind of well saved in inverted commas because he still died somehow. Um, But in um, Block's follow-up story, (laughs) he kind of makes it fairly clear that he doesn't think that's the the case. Well, let's, let's move on to Block's story then. Okay. Uh, well, at some this is this kind of ties in. At some point, um, the character says it came to you, but unlike the case of Blake, it did not kill you. So he very much implies there that the thing did kill Blake. At that yes, point, he didn't just yeah. die from uh, sheer terror. Mm-hmm. Yes, the, you're perhaps not meaning to, but you know, Blake just didn't survive the possession attempt. But, but then again, that's just one of Block's characters talking. Yes, so, so. it's not. So it's not definitive. Really, is 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 beyond the story. So so yeah, I mean, this brings us on quite nicely to the third story in the the, the trilogy, if you want to call it that, uh, which is the Shadow from the Steeple, mm-hmm. uh, which is you know, Robert Block's um, revisiting of all this some years later. He wrote this in the nineteen fifties, mm. um, and. Uh, I mean, the, the, the first half of the story, or perhaps even more than half of the story, is basically a recap of the events of The Haunter of the Dark. Um, so, you know, he published this in Weird Tales, but, you know, being so much later, there wasn't necessarily the expectation that people would have read um, uh, the, the Haunter of the Dark or The Jambler from the Stars. Um, but, I mean, the three of them are published together, you know, end-to-end in um, Tales, from the Cthulhu, Tales of the Cthulhu Mythos. Um yeah, the, the the rest of Block's story is is quite fascinating. I mean, his his protagonist in it is a, an old friend of Robert Blake's who has spent the last fifteen or whatever years trying to work out the circumstances of his friend's death. Yeah, I mean, he spent a lot of those years. Um, Edmund Fisk. He spent many of those years trying to de- to track down a Dr. Ambrose Dexter. Yes. Uh, well, having first discovered that everyone else involved with Blake's death is now dead. And this is this is where the metafictional aspect of it comes in as well. Because one of the people that he's going looking for is H.P. Lovecraft. Mm. And, of mm-hmm. course, Lovecraft died of cancer uh, within about a year of writing uh, Haunter of the Dark Lesson. And this, and this story, The Shadow from the Steeple, actually names Lovecraft by name. Exactly. Yes. So, so yeah, the, this this then draws upon the sort of hint uh, metafictional narrative in The Haunter of the Dark and then makes it explicit. You know, Lovecraft then becomes a character within the extension of his own fiction. His own fiction then becomes, you know, uh, part of the reality of this world. And it's an important aspect that we missed out of The Haunter of the Dark is that uh, the um, trapezohedron is cast into the Narangaset Bay. Yes, yeah, almost as a kind of um, a coda. Really, it's not really detailed up until that point. It's almost just as an aside. By the way, it got dropped here. Yeah, it's, there's no detail given as to how the doctor got it, why he went in there, etc. It's just he turned up. He did this. That's yeah. it. Which, you know, is a pretty odd thing because, you know, we've established it um, in The Haunter of the Dark that the trapezohedron um, is 
the, the powers of it are kept at bay by light. Um, and, you know, then to drop it into a dark bay seems like a very weird thing to do if you're trying to protect the world from it. Well, I kind of struggled as I was going through the story, The Haunter of the Dark, I kept reading it and thinking, oh, yes, they want to keep light on it. But then he shuts the box. Yeah. It seems like sometimes it's a good idea to put it in the dark. Sometimes it's a good idea to have it in the light. You cast it into the bay. It's going to be in the dark. I think. But, the, I think the rules surrounding how it works are actually explained quite well in the story. It's a bit scattered, but the way the way it works is that for the trapezohedron to become effective, the, the powers have got to be drawn out by contact with the human mind. Uh, once it is, then you know, it's, in the light it's, or in the dark. In in the dark. Then at that point, it's powered up until light hits it again. So, um, in in yeah in uh, the Haunter of the Dark, you know it's been sitting there in the light for some time. Its power's completely sapped. Robert Blake goes along, looks at it in a dark room, uh, makes contact with it, and then shuts the box, keeping it in the dark. So the trapezohedron is then alive again. That's why the entities are coming out. That's why the Haunter of the Dark reappears, and goes off, and sees him. Um, and at the end of this, you know, the, the, the trapezohedron in his box uh, is taken out in the dark of night and dropped uh, in this this bay off Providence. So, um, yeah, I, 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 at no point apparently had its power been broken by exposure to light after Blake uh, had, had reawoken it. Hmm. See, I went to... Um I was thinking, I was, I was struggling with this a little bit, and I went to um, the Tour de Lovecraft by Ken Hyde, and the major point he made was the inconsistency in the dark light thing. I, I, I disagree, it made perfect sense to me. Did it? Yeah. Okay. There was also one thing to bring in here as well, that it also brings in a third literary character, that um, Block was reportedly, according to the uh, Cthulhu Cycle book volume 2, Mysteries of the Worm, um, that Block had mentioned repeatedly that um, Edmund Fisk was actually a stand-in for Fritz Leiber. Huh. Okay. Oh. Huh. Who, who was another uh, tangential member of the Lovecraft mm. Circle. I mean, you know, it, it, it's, it's interesting that you, you, you bring Lieber in here because... Um, uh, oh, sorry, I'm Lieber, Lieber. No, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure you're right. It's Lieber. Yes, mm-hmm. it's, it's interesting that you bring Lieber in here because um, one story the the Haunter of the Dark reminds me an awful lot of is uh, his Our Lady of Darkness, um, which mm-hmm. uh, I mean, has got ties to the Lovecraft Circle anyway because a lot of it surrounds a, a, a book that had previously been owned by Clark Ashton Smith. Um, but there, there's a you know there, there's a very strong parallel to the Haunter of the Dark in in Our Lady of Darkness. Oh. I've not actually uh, read it, so I, I know the title. It's but... a it's a fantastic book. Oh, yeah. okay. So Edmund Fisk comes back to Providence uh, in search of what happened to um, Lovecraft and um, Robert Blake. Yes, and th- there's mentions of a few other characters there, aren't there, who who died around the same time? Other ones are bit characters that are mentioned yeah. in the original Haunter of the Dark. Yes, I think the only one that's still alive from is the sergeant, or the who was the patrolman who now is a sergeant. Yes, but saying that he was a, he, even then he was um, conducting his rounds as a replacement for so another patrolman. Oh, by the way, he's also dead, and it was just everyone that was connected to it had died in some fashion. And we find that uh, Edmund cannot um, locate this one doctor, um, Dr. Dexter. 
Um, he's, he's been writing he, to him for years. Um, yeah, Doctor Doctor Dexter, though being an MD, seems to have gotten be, become involved with um, uh, military matters and atomic research and. Uh, everywhere um, that that Fisk has tracked him down to you know, and sent letters to, you know, the letters have just been unreturned. Well, I think they'd screen their mail that they're sending in and out of Los Alamos. To be fair, <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, beyond that, he's just had you know, no luck trying to get hold of him. Hmm. But he eventually gets word that uh, Dexter has returned to his family home in Providence mm-hmm. uh, and decides to track him down there. Where he keeps the lights on to all hours of the night. Yes. <laughs> yeah, he does. This Doctor is a pretty suspicious character from the outset, I think. Mm-hmm. We kind of... It's pretty clearly flagged up that he's uh, suspicious. Mm-hmm. He's a day, he's, <clears throat> looks like a day over 35, but he must be 50. And uh, our protagonist ends up pulling a pistol on uh, on the Doctor and, and exclaiming that he knows who the Doctor is... Um, and that's where he says that bit about it came to kill you, but unlike the case of Blake, it did not kill you. Um, and he reaches for his gun, and at the same point, Dr. Dex- Dexter flicks the lights off, and all is plunged into darkness. It becomes apparent at that stage that the reason that the good Doctor has been keeping the lights on is not to ward off the Haunter of the Dark, but um, because he has something to hide about himself. Uh, which is namely uh, that he glows in the dark. Mm. A bit like Homer Simpson working at the radar, working at the nuclear plant. He glows green. Well, yeah. working at the nuclear plant is the point, isn't it? Yes. Because this guy apparently worked with Einstein and worked on the H bomb. Yeah, yeah. He was um, part of the Trinity test. Well, it, yeah. more than that, it's, it's mentioned that he, you know, sort of uh, influenced a lot of the physicists and got them going on the project, and has been there, you know, all along with the development of the nuclear program. Just like Neartholotep in the short story, he is the herald of new technology into the world that will bring about its downfall. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's the point. I, um, he even yeah, quotes the sonnet from that, that, from Yogoth. Yeah. Yes, that's right. I mean, he, um, he does. He exclaims, "Neartholotep." And then he says, uh, Lovecraft's words took on a new meaning. And he quotes, And at last from inner Egypt came the strange dark one to whom the fellas bowed, that wild beasts followed him and licked his hands. (laughs) Which is a great way to end the story as well. Yes. (laughs) And, well, and the story ends with the lights flicking out. um, And uh, sadly... um, Mr. Fisk has a heart attack or something. Cause, uh, the doctor's soon calling the police to say uh, it's his friend, Mr. Fisk, has had a heart attack. Bit and anti- he- bit anticlimactic at first, but then he, it's the scene where he wanders outside that gets me. Yes, wanders outside and meets Bea. But there's been a bit on the radio earlier about uh, a couple of leopards escaping from a, a circus. Uh, and yeah, he goes outside a bit later, and these these two leopards just kind of stroll up. Black panthers. Oh, yeah, black. There you go. All right, black panthers. Yes. Big Sorry. cat. Uh, and start licking. <laughs> I thought hands. they were representatives of the Black Power movement. Is that not right? <laughs> <laughs> Did I get that wrong? I I, I think just slightly. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. But um, 
Yeah, the, the 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 implication, you know, in the story is that um, you know the the haunter of the dark has possessed the doctor, made him into an avatar of Neolithic, and he has been then, you know, building up the the human nuclear programs to you know ultimately bring about the destruction of the world to blow Earth's dust away. Yes. Now, the, Robert Block a while later um, wrote a fantastic novel which I read many many years back, and unfortunately my memories of it are vague. Uh, called Stranger Yons, um, which in a lot of ways is the spiritual successor to this story. Um, it, it doesn't... It follows similar themes, and again, it's about uh, an avatar of Nialathotep um, coming to bring about the destruction of the world. But he, he poses as a religious figure in this, the Reverend Nye, um, and uh, kind of ushers in the apocalypse, and that, that, that's what the story's about. Is is about the apocalypse, the end of days, and you know what Neolithic um, uh, brings down upon the world of man. Very carnival in that sense. Um, Thinking preacher who's trying to yeah. bring about the end. Yes, yes, something like that. Um, and yeah, but in a lot of ways, it seemed you know to me that uh, the shadow from the steeple was almost the blueprint for that. Uh, and has left me wanting to reread that because my memories of it are so so vague. <laughs> I'll have to add that to my reading list because it's one of the, one of the things I found. I was quite surprised how much I actually enjoyed uh, Shadow from the Steep. Oh, yeah, Robert Block is a fantastic writer. Yes. Yeah, Block's work, Block's words kind of flow off the page pretty easily. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it, as much as I like reading Lovecraft stories. Sometimes reading it isn't. It's not the easiest thing to sit down and read. Um, whereas, yeah. yeah, Block's work's very different. Yeah, well, Block's work is very different in The Shadow from the Steeple. I mean, you know, in uh, The Shambler from the Stars, like a lot of writers uh, who were influenced by Lovecraft, he started out very much aping Lovecraft's style. Uh, and, you know, the, um, uh, the Shambler from the Stars is, is Lovecraft light. Mm. Um, you know, it's a very assured style. He's, you know, for, particularly for an 18 year old, it's very kind of fluid and, and solid text, but it is absolutely, you know, Lovecraftian. In, yeah, I mean, he's, he's a, a, a set, he's setting out in his writing and 17, 18 years old, emulating somebody that he, uh, his work he admires. Yes. Um, yeah, it's the work of a young writer, and and yeah, that that's that's what you know a lot of the Lovecraftian writers did. I mean, Ramsey Campbell did the same thing. You know, he, and still do. <laughs> Ramsey Campbell, not Ramsey he emu- Campbell. He emulated. No, lots also. of people still yeah. do emulate it. Well, yeah, a, yeah I, I think most most writers who you know started out aping Lovecraft, you know, developed in their own sensibilities and and you know became more assured. Yeah, they yeah. found their own not, voice. Not all of them. Mm. Um, our original plan for this episode was to go through the stories and then expand on them for gaming purposes. As it is, we found so much stuff to say about the stories that we're actually going to cut it here. Um, and then we'll come back for a follow-up episode, which we'll release next week, um, where we'll actually discuss the gaming aspects. To be continued. It's a bog-off. Buy one, get one free. <laughs> Only this week with the good friends of Jackson Elias. So uh, look us up on Facebook. We've got a Facebook group now. So uh, the good friends of Jackson Elias. Um, you should be able to find it. I'm sure you guys know what you're doing. You're all tech savvy. If you found your way here, you can find your way to Facebook. We're yeah. on, one would hope. <laughs> we're on Twitter as well, uh, where thanks to the limitations of, of Twitter usernames, we're not the good friends of Jackson Elias because that's too many bloody characters. Yeah. Uh, so we're the good friends of J.E. 
So, mm. so you know, I, you know, being good friends of Jackson Elias, we can call him J. I think so. Yeah, we're, we're, all, we're all first name terms. Yeah. Well, initials. In fact, there you yeah, go. Just, just two letters. J. I, and and was <laughs> Jeff. 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 Sounds a bit French. It does. Yes. Uh, and <laughs> nothing wrong with that. <laughs> the the look on your face says otherwise. <laughs> the, you, you, again, yeah. This this being audio, you're missing the look of absolute disdain on Paul's face. You're making that up. <laughs> Admittedly, <love> the French. <laughs> Invisibly, that's indistinguishable from Paul's normal look. <laughs> so true. So, hey, so uh, we're also on Google Plus. We have been on Google Plus for a long time. Mm. We're still on Google Plus. We will carry on being on Google Plus for a yeah, long time. People uh, do use it. Several other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, of course, come over and see us on blasphemoustomes.com. And it's horror movie marathon month of October, and Scott is is watching horror films back to back. Uh, yeah, and, and posting about them daily. Yes, yes. I, I, I uh, watching thirty-one horror films which I haven't seen before over the course of the month. And Are you sure, there that many. Uh, it's it's been a struggle to find thirty-one that I haven't seen. <laughs> so so there, there are some pretty obscure films turning up there. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm writing a short review of each one. So take a look. Ooh. Okay. Well, we've been the good friends of Jackson Elias, looking at the Haunter of the Dark, and we will see you next week for a follow-up episode about The Haunter of the Dark and its impact on gaming. Same mad time, same mad channel. It's a good night from me. Cheerio. And farewell.